0: Good morning, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. It's been a little while since I've been up here. Uh, uh, So I'm excited to be with you this morning as we start our new summer series on the Great Commission. This is gonna be exciting. We're gonna not just only spend today, but the next two months looking at these last few verses of the book of Matthew, in which Jesus commands us as his disciples to make disciples of all nations. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking particularly at this passage, the last few verses of Matthew. Today we're going to do an overview basically of all of chapter 28, but understand this from the beginning. The reason why this passage is so important is because right here at the end of this gospel, we find the mission of the church, the reason why we exist, the reason why we gather, the reason why we send each other from here is to be engaged in this mission to make disciples. This is not only Cornerstone's mission, of course. This is the mission of the church, the universal capital C church made up of every believer in every place in all time. This is the job that Jesus has given us. And if this is the universal church's job, that also means that it is a job of every local church including this local church made up of us living in this place at this time. We exist primarily to be engaged in the making of disciples here, where God has placed us, and then secondarily to be engaged in the sending and partnering with others who are engaged in making disciples in other places around the world because this is a global mission that Jesus has given us. So make no mistake about it, the reason why this passage is so worthy of our attention over the next several weeks is because this gives us our marching orders, the defining purpose for our lives. More than making money, making memories, making babies, making a mess, we exist for the making of disciples, learners, followers of Jesus. Jesus. So, it's well worth our time to focus on these verses. We will see over these next two months as we look at this passage backwards, forwards, look at each phrase of it, that this commission, this mission that Jesus has given us, is not just about what he's called us to do for him. It is rooted in what he has done for us and promises to continue to do for us. Does that make sense? So again, whether you are very familiar with this passage or you've never heard the phrase Great Commission before, these next two months will be important for us as we seek to learn and remember and commit ourselves to this defining purpose for our lives, both as individuals and as a church family. So my purpose this morning is to give us an overview of basically where we're going to go over the next couple of months, and we're actually going to start by giving an overview of this Chapter in which this commission is given to us. So again, if you have a Bible phone, if you need a Bible, we got ushers who'd love to put one in your hands. We're gonna start at the beginning of Matthew chapter 28. So go ahead and look at verse one. Maybe even before that, you can see the little chapter heading that was added in at the beginning of this chapter. Does anybody tell me what does it say? That maybe the little bold chapter heading before verse one. What happens that's very significant at the beginning of Matthew 28? The resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that's very worth mentioning before we move on because get this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the defining moment in the history of the world up to this point. The most important moment that has ever happened, full stop. Jesus rising from the dead, victorious over death, the first to be raised to live forevermore from the grave. That's huge. And the way that this good news, biggest good news of all, is delivered is to two women who both have the same name, both named Mary. They go to the tomb with some spices and oils to go and anoint Jesus' body for burial on Sunday morning. Jesus died Friday afternoon. And typically, Jewish custom is you get the the body into the grave as soon as possible. But they couldn't do the full customary preparation of his body because the following day, that Saturday was a very important day. Does anybody remember what day it was that Saturday that made it so important? The Passover. Not only a Sabbath, but the Independence Day of the Israelite people, when God freed them from the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt and brought them to Himself to be his special people to serve him. This was a very special Sabbath on which no normal work could be done, so these women, in observance of the Old Testament, waited. Jesus' body was quickly put into Joseph's tomb. The women knew where it was. They're gonna, they said, okay, we'll come back after the Passover and we'll anoint his body for burial where it will stay. But as they come to this tomb, there's an earthquake. Terrifying enough. And then when they saw what caused the earthquake, it was even more terrifying. See what it says? The earthquake was caused by an angel. This, and this, this heavenly spiritual being who comes down to roll away the stone that was before uh, in front of the tomb. And do you see in verse 3 how it describes what this angel looked like? He shone like lightning. This, would be beyond, be beyond, this was beyond their frame of reference, their experience. What do we do with this? As a matter of fact, we read about, there was a group of soldiers that had been stationed there at the tomb to guard. They were put there by the religious leaders to guard of what they thought would happen. The most likely thing in their minds was Jesus talked about rising from the dead. There's no way that can happen. So what's probably gonna happen is that his disciples will come, steal his body, and then try to pass it off like he rose from the dead. So they put soldiers there to guard the tomb. These weren't like your rent-a-cop, mall-cop guys on like a a Segway. These are battle-hardened warriors. And what happens to them when they see this angel? Says they fell down like dead men, just overcome with fear and dread, pastel cold on the spot. And yet these two women don't. Crazy, right? Why were they not overcome by this? I think it has a lot to do with what the angel said to them. Look what he says here in verse five. Do not be afraid. Oh, that's good news to hear from a being shining like lightning, right? <laughs> do not be afraid. Why? I know that you're here to seek Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here. He's not here. You know why? Why? Because he has risen just as he said. I love that phrase. He's risen just as he says. He reminds them of the three times before Jesus' crucifixion where Jesus told his disciples, I will go to Jerusalem. I will be shamefully treated by the religious leaders. I will be put to death by evil men. And three days later, I will rise again the angel says look what jesus said happened he brings to their mind exactly what jesus said he reminds them of that he says then in verse six come see the place where he lay come in the tomb with me look where he was then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and before he's going before you to galilee and there you will see him see i've told you and i love this in verse eight So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, to go tell the disciples. With fear and great joy. Think about that for a moment. These are two contradictory but completely understandable responses to what they just seen, right? A power had been unleashed through the resurrection of Jesus that was far more than these women could fully control or even fully comprehend. This was a fearsome power that had been unleashed in the resurrection of Jesus, and yet it was a power that also brought great joy. Can you imagine them running from that tomb, trying to wrap their minds around it going, is this really true? Is this the way the world works now? Because it's never worked like this before. There's life on the other side of the grave, not just a spiritual existence, but actual embodied life. Fear and joy as they run from that tomb and try to wrap their minds around what had happened. But then I love it because before they get much further, something even better happens. Verse 9, behold, Jesus comes and meets them. His words to them are the same as the angels do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I know that what's going on is bigger than you can understand, but I want to assure you, you have nothing to fear. This is good news of great joy that's for all people, and they need to know about it. So not only does he say, do not be afraid, he says, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's pause and reflect here for a second before we move on. Because I also think just in these two simple verses, We see the two logical, appropriate responses that all people should have when they encounter and believe this good news of the resurrection of Jesus. What do the women come and do first? They took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. The first appropriate response to the good news of Jesus is to come and worship, praise him acknowledge him as the ruler and victor over satan sin death god become man to rescue us and bring us to him that's what we're here to do but not only to come and worship what does jesus tell them to do in the next verse now go and tell go and tell my brothers go and tell my disciples that this good news is for them as well So understand this, the two kind of reciprocal responses to this good news is to come and worship this Jesus and to go and tell others of this Jesus. These are the rhythms of our lives. If you are a follower of Jesus, these are the rhythms of our lives. We are gathered here this morning to come and worship this Jesus. And in a few more minutes from now, we will send one another to go and tell of this good news to others. Position and fix your heart, your mind on this. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is a rhythm of coming and worshiping and going and telling. Let us practice that together. But let me point out another detail to you. Both Jesus and the angel told the disciples to go and meet him in Galilee. Now let me throw a little map up on the screen. Hopefully you can see it there for you. Understand, Jesus was crucified, he rose again in Jerusalem. At this scene right now where he's talking to the women, he's in Jerusalem. But he tells the guys, or tells the ladies, go tell the guys, to go meet me up in Galilee, which refers to that whole region surrounding the Sea of Galilee. This is where the majority of Jesus' ministry, his healings, his teachings took place. And so Jesus tells his disciples, go back there. And in Matthew's gospel, this is the the, the one interaction that Matthew records that the disciples had with Jesus after his resurrection. But we know from the other gospels from Mark and Luke and John and even from the book of Acts that there were many interactions that Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection, not just this one. In Acts 1, we, we, we learn that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended back up into heaven with his disciples. And it says he did that to give them ample proof of his resurrection. This wasn't just an appearance, an apparition, something that seemed to be. He was there, he ate with them, he walked with them, he talked with them. It was truly him alive again. And it says during those 40 days, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God, about the good rule of God that had broken in to defeat evil and make all things new again. That's a very important concept. We're going to keep coming back to this idea of the kingdom of God today and next week and throughout this series. But out of all those instances of Jesus interacting with the disciples, Matthew only records this one. And it's really significant. Because as I said before, this is where Jesus gives them their marching orders and says, what I've done with you, I now want you to do with the world. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, not 12 anymore, Judas the betrayer has already taken his own life. But the 11 who are left, they receive a message from the women and they go to Galilee And it says they go to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, we're not sure what mountain this is that they're talking about because I don't know if you can tell from the map. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains and hills on all sides. So we don't know which mountain it was. It very well could have been the same mountain on which Jesus, earlier in his ministry, had given the sermon on the mountain that defining message of his ministry in which he described what the kingdom of God is like and what life under his good rule will look like. And if, if this is the same mountain, that seems rather appropriate to me because we're gonna see in just a couple verses, he's about to tell these disciples from this mountain, go and teach others to observe everything that I've commanded you. So it makes sense if he's on the same mountain where he gave them such definitive commands. But the place is not as important as what he says. Again, the disciples get there, they come to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And look what it says in verse 17. When they got there, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Stop and consider this for a moment, too. Like the women, when the eleven see Jesus, their response is to worship him. And yet, like the women, there's a mixed response. There's a mixed reaction here. It says some doubted. Some commentators take that to mean that while the 11 were there, maybe some of the 11 doubted. Maybe the 11 were there, but there was a larger group of disciples. And maybe amongst that larger group, there were some people who kind of hung back from the worship service and just went, yeah, we're not sure about this. Not entirely sure. It could also be, another way to look at it, is that this is talking about a mixed response that they felt at the same time. They experience at the same time. A sense of worshiping and going, yeah, but I don't know what to do with this. I can't fully wrap my mind around this. Have you ever been in an experience like that? Maybe Could have been a good thing, could have been a terrible thing, where you're going, I see it, but I don't believe what I'm seeing. I don't know what to do with it. I can't wrap my head around it. The reality is, as finite people with small minds and limited perspective, especially when we contemplate the things of God there will always be a sizable gap between what we can see and what we can wrap our minds around and it's right there in that gap where faith plays out where we go okay Jesus i know enough about you to trust that what you're true what you're saying is true who you say you are is true but if i think i've got you figured out oh, i don't There was worshiping and doubting going on in the same instance. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to be there to be filled with wonder and adoration of Jesus, to be one who, you know, however many years earlier, two, three plus years earlier said, I'd leave everything to follow this man. bank your whole life upon him and then see him breathe his last on the cross and go, what was it all for? And now to see him alive, living, breathing there, speaking to you yet with the marks on his wrists and his feet and the hole in his side and go, what? How do I wrap my mind around all of this? It was a thrill and yet it was hard to grasp. Gosh, there's a lot more that we could go into in regard to this relationship between worshiping and doubting. And that's why later on in this series, Todd's gonna take a whole Sunday just to talk about here in verse 17. But the point I want you to see is this an essential part of all of our discipleship as followers of Jesus is learning how to deal honestly with our doubts, to deal honestly with that gap between what God says and what we can wrap our minds around. We all experience doubt at different times to differing degrees. Perhaps you were raised in an environment where you were taught to suppress those doubts. It wasn't safe to ask those questions. You were seen as challenging or disrespectful for even having those thoughts, and so perhaps you learned to just keep it to yourself, to suppress it, to say, okay, maybe there'll be this little personal religious part of my life, but I recognize that this doesn't make sense in the real world, so I'll adopt a different persona for the way that I live in the actual world. Perhaps maybe what you did is you looked for comfort from other people, perhaps outside of the church, outside of the Christian family who... Instead, just continue to throw gas on the fire of your doubts. Inflame your doubts rather than try to help you to honestly address them. Perhaps even now you're in a season of, specific, of significant doubt and you're not sure where to turn. And I want you to pay attention to what we see in this passage. Here in Matthew 28, we have the risen Jesus about ready to declare his authority over all things. And yet he receives doubters into his presence. He does not reject them for their doubts. Instead, he speaks words of truth and promise and mission over them, even in the midst of their doubts. Their doubts did not disqualify them from being enlisted in the mission of Jesus. Here are people worshiping Jesus who don't have it all figured out, who are worshiping in the midst of their doubts. And if that resonates with you at all, may these words wash over you right now. Come to Jesus with your doubts. Don't allow your questions and the things you don't understand to keep you away from him. You can learn to worship Jesus and wrestle to understand him at the same time. And I would say to you, even from my own experience in my own life, often it is that act of worshiping Jesus even when I don't understand him that leads in the long run to greater understanding. Not withholding worship until I understand but coming to him and going, if it's true that you have all authority, that you rule as king over all, then the last thing that I wanna do is sit in authority over you and withhold my praise until I understand you. But I said, how do I come to you? And even in that act, say, I don't understand, but I come to you, help me with my unbelief. Does that sound familiar at all from the gospels? Remember that story in Mark 9? The man whose son was oppressed by a demon, and he comes to Jesus and he goes, If you can do anything, can you help us? It's one of those moments where I feel like Jesus would have given some, like, Huh? Did I hear you right? If I can? Anything is possible for him who believes. And you remember how the Father responds, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what it looks like to worship in the midst of doubts, to worship and wrestle, to come to Jesus and say, help me with what I don't understand. My hope is that we as a church family grow to become more and more a place where we help one another to worship and wrestle well as we look to Jesus and his word and his spirit for the understanding that we need. That's what I see going on here in Matthew chapter 28. The disciples are worshiping Jesus and rustling to understand what it all means and what it means for them. And so what Jesus does in these iconic words that have continued to resonate for 2,000 years is he speaks to them in clear, understandable terms, giving them a declaration, a commission, and a promise. And in our remaining time, let's look at these briefly. First comes a declaration in verse 18. Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You're rustling to understand and figure out what all of this means that I'm risen from the dead. Here's what it means. I have all authority. I have all power. I have all rule. I am king of kings and lords of lords forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen? He says that this authority in this verse has been given to him clearly implying that it is God the Father who was the giver of this gift. And he states this just simply as a point of fact, a past tense reality. This has already happened. But he doesn't specify when. He doesn't specify when all authority in heaven and earth was given to him. This is something new some result of Jesus's resurrection that now because he's risen from the dead, now he has all rule and authority? It could be. And yet, a year or more earlier, back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus had said this. Oh, Sorry, I got lost my notes. Here we go. Back to Matthew 11:27, he said, already all things have been handed over to me by my father. This is in the middle of his ministry. Sure sounds like he already has authority, right? All things have been already given into his hands. Not only that, in John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated, as he rises from the table to then take the servant's towel and wash his disciples' feet, John tells us what was on Jesus' mind. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he'd come from God and was going back to God. Again, it sure seems to be Jesus knows, has already declared all authority. All things have been given to him by the Father even before his death and resurrection. So what's he saying now? Well, think about this. In Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, was his authority challenged? Was his rule over all things challenged by those who opposed him? Absolutely, the religious leaders challenged him throughout his ministry. On what authority do you do these things? They used their authority to have him arrested and put on trial, but they didn't have the authority to put somebody to death, so they went to Pilate, used the authority of Rome to challenge the authority of Jesus. Satan himself, in coming into Judas and facilitating the betrayal of Jesus, sought to oppose the authority of Jesus. The way that Hebrews 2 talks about it, it describes that the greatest challenge to Jesus's authority came from death itself. Hebrews 2 talks about Satan as the one who has the power of death, that from the moment that he deceived Adam and Eve into joining him in rebellion against God and bringing the curse over all mankind, he is described as the one who has the power of death. And so what Satan is doing in the crucifixion, he's pulling out the biggest, baddest weapon that he has in his arsenal, the one that's worked on everyone else. Death itself. And yet three days later, Jesus rose again. He stood to the challenge. Not even death can stand against Jesus. I love the way that that the writer of Hebrews puts this in Hebrews 2 where he says that just like we have flesh and blood, Jesus shared in our humanity so that through death, he could destroy, render inoperative, defeat the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, so that he might set free those, you and I, who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. This is such good news. Jesus rules even over death. And so here in Matthew chapter 28, We have the risen Jesus standing on this mountain with his disciples saying, all authority in heaven and earth and all of creation for all time has been given to me and there is none who can stand against the authority, the power of King Jesus. And that is very good news. But think about this with me for a second. We have to think carefully about this idea of authority and power. We're going to spend all next week looking at this more. But let me just give you a little teaser of why I think this idea of, of thinking about Jesus having all authority as a good thing is important. It's because the reality is, the ideas of authority, of power, power may be one of the most weaponized ideas in our world today. So much so that it's become common to think that power itself is a corrupt thing, an evil thing. We see it as a necessary evil. I mean, our our world doesn't run without it. But in some ways, it's an inescapable evil, something that we need to be protected from. The thought runs through all of our minds that power can't be trusted, and especially those with power can't be trusted. Friedrich Nietzsche was a philosopher. He was one of the first to kind of articulate this idea that has become so popular in our day that most of us just assume it's just the way the world has always worked. In Nietzsche's thought, all human interactions are basically just power plays. It's all a chess game. It's all just a way to try to gain the upper hand and assert your will over others. And even he would say, those times when it looks like people or groups of people are partnering well together, it's just because for at the moment, their, their desires line up. But inevitably, they'll come a point of conflict where one will try to assert dominance over the other. Because that's just the way the world works. Power is a coercive thing that we use for our own ends. Or as the famous saying that that most of us grew up learning goes like this. Power corrupts, and therefore absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. It's an axiom, a truism that we just take this is the way the world works. But hold on a second, because what is Jesus doing right here in verse 18? If absolute power corrupts absolutely, is Jesus not claiming absolute power? in this passage? See, we need to think about this. This is one of those places where doubt needs to be dealt with honestly, because this right here, the Great Commission, which we take as good news, as a a goal worth giving our lives to, many people look at this and they go, see, there it is again. This isn't good news. This is just another claim to power and authority and to oppress others. Is that true? Does Jesus' claim to absolute authority mean that he is another corrupt ruler seeking to exert his will over others? Or if not Jesus, is this what people in the name of Jesus put these words into his mouth, into the Bible, and now are using it for their own power-hungry goals? Is the gospel itself nothing more than another power play, another way to gain the upper hand over others by invoking God or Jesus or religion? Or perhaps could it be that our commonplace idea of power as a corrupting thing is itself a corrupt idea? Could it be that power is not inherently evil, but rather is actually inherently good, a godly thing, which like so many of the gifts that God has given us, we have twisted and corrupted to our own detriment? Could it be that Jesus' declaration that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that in that statement we are seeing the redemption of power, the making new of authority, it being returned to its rightful ruler, to an incorruptible ruler who will exercise authority as a good thing from a good God to bring blessing to others, not oppression, What if power is ultimately about creativity and love and fellowship and blessing? Gosh, that would be an amazing world to live in, wouldn't it? Next week, again, like I said, we're gonna spend our whole time talking about this idea of power, how Jesus redeems it and then shares this new life-giving power with those who follow him. But for this morning, understand this. Jesus, if you wanna know what the resurrection is all about, Jesus viewed his resurrection as the proof, the vindication of his right to rule as king of kings over all things. Before the great commission in which Jesus commands us to do something, we have the great declaration of Jesus's authority over all things. We have to start there. This is an essential place for us to start. I would say especially at a time like 4th of July weekend, when we are celebrating another declaration. We celebrate here on July 4th, tomorrow, the signing of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress. We celebrate it that way, even though the Congress adopted the declaration on July 4th, it was another month before they all signed it. But that just makes it harder to know which date to celebrate and take off work. So we'll just go with July 4th. Was the Declaration of Independence an important declaration? Yes. It does not hold a candle to the declaration of the risen Lord Jesus that he has all authority in heaven and on earth forever. That is a much greater declaration. But stop with me and think about that for a moment. Think about the power that these two declarations have on your life right now. The Declaration of Independence, Jesus' declaration of all power and authority in all of creation for all of time. Think with me honestly for a moment. Which declaration has more has had more of a shaping influence on your life? Shaping your imagination, your identity, your sense of self and belonging. Let me put it a little more simply. If you were to honestly look at your life, do you see yourself as an American who happens to be a Christian or as a Christian who lives to represent Jesus within the United States of America? I'm not trying to start a fight by asking that question, but I do think we are up against The idolatry that comes naturally to all of us to give the allegiance and significance that Jesus alone deserves to other people and things, whether good or bad. The truth is that we Christians do have a responsibility to be good citizens, to be good neighbors, to seek to do good and bring blessing to this nation and the community in which we live. But we have to help each other keep the right identity, the right allegiance at the top. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that identity in Jesus must come before all other identities, whether it's your national identity, political, family, ethnicity, profession, gender. All of those other identities and allegiances will gladly take first position in your life. But Jesus' words here in Matthew 20, 18 allow for no rivals He has all authority in heaven and on earth. If you are a follower of Jesus, then your primary allegiance is not to a country, a party, a flag, or any person other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ, amen? Because he alone has been given authority over all heaven and earth. We serve him before and above any other, amen? Easy words to amen to in this room. What does it look like in our lives? Again, it is important to be good citizens, good neighbors to seek to bring blessing to this nation where we live. But if you are a follower, Jesus is gonna say this a third time to make it clear. He alone claims your first and ultimate allegiance, your devotion. This is essential for us to get straight and then to help each other fight to keep straight. The temptation is strong in all of us to give that allegiance and that devotion that Jesus alone deserves to to other people and things. But I am convinced as I look at Scripture, part of why I'm so excited to keep spending time here in the Great Commission, is that as we learn to live under the good rule of Jesus as King of kings and Lord over all, This is also how we will learn to truly be a blessing and serve those around us in our communities because we will demonstrate the life-giving, redemptive nature of his rule. The hard part, though, is that as I look at the church in America as I look at the church in Simi Valley, even as I look amongst us here at Cornerstone, here's what grieves me, and I say this not from a place of superiority, but from a place of would you join me in seeking repentance? Would you join me in seeking to turn and trust in our Savior? Because I see that our imagination has been captured far more by the Declaration of Independence's call to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness than to Jesus's call to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. They are not compatible. Far too many of us are far more concerned, far more distressed and consumed with gaining or trying to protect mere political power than we are with learning to walk in the death-defeating, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Far too many of us are far more committed to the U.S. Constitution than we are to Jesus' commission. Is there much good in the U.S. Constitution? Yes. Much to be grateful for? Yes. That's why I think there is an element in our celebrations of of this weekend which are legitimate. We have much to be grateful for. But do not forget this. The Constitution was written by imperfect humans who were seeking to form a more perfect union, but both the document they created and the union they created are far from perfect. It cannot handle the weight of your ultimate allegiance and trust. It will disappoint you. But Jesus can. Jesus can handle the weight of your ultimate allegiance and trust. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by the Father. He is the victor over Satan, sin, and death. He alone is that firm foundation to build your life upon. Amen? Amen. Amen. And it is on the basis of his declaration of authority given to him by the Father, vindicated by his victory over death, that Jesus goes on to give us our commission. And we'll look at this briefly as we wrap up. In light of the authority of Jesus, he says, therefore, go, as you go, make disciples of all nations. Notice, Jesus, with all authority in heaven and on earth, does not send us on a mission of world domination, he does not send us on a mission of hostile conquest, violent takeover. The crusaders in the middle of the ages who massacred people in the name of Jesus were flat out wrong. It was idolatrous and evil and wrong. Jesus has not given us a mission of domination but of discipleship. We are not called to superiority, but to service. We do not impose any particular culture or custom. Jesus has given us a mission to make disciples from all nations because he desires and has chosen people from all nations and all ethnicities to come to worship him in the uniqueness of their language and their customs because our God delights in diversity. You cannot look at the sheer diversity in the natural world and not conclude that our God is not a God who loves sameness and uniformity. He loves richness and diversity and a teeming world full of all kinds of creatures, all kinds of humans united under the banner of Jesus Christ. That is our God's desire, and that ought to be ours as well. Amen? We have been commissioned by Jesus to make disciples, make students, apprentices, those who learn together with us to follow the life and teachings of Jesus. Like the women who are at the tomb, our lives are shaped by this idea of coming and worshiping and going and telling. And as we tell there, he says, to baptize those who believe in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, to this symbolize that they've left that old life behind. And they found new life under the good rule of Jesus, a new identity in his family. We'll spend a whole week just on that, baptism. We'll spend a whole week on this idea of what does it mean to teach, to observe, keep, practice, and pass on all that Jesus has given to us. In short, the way we talk about it here at Cornerstone, you maybe saw this in the lobby as you walked in. We are a group of disciples who are seeking to learn from Jesus, trust Jesus, become Like Jesus, praise you, God, that you can transform us to be like this one that we worship and to help others do the same. And finally, there comes the promise. Look at the end of verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age, until the end of the age the one who has all rule and authority, the one who in his birth was called Emmanuel, God with us, gives us the promise here in this verse that he is with us as we carry out this global mission of discipleship. He is with us always to the end, the culmination, the completion of the age until the time comes for the dead to be raised and all to be judged and death itself to be thrown in the lake of fire and all things to be made new again. Jesus is with us. That is the only way that this mission can succeed. Not through our skill, our strength, charisma, but through his power and presence. These last words of Jesus... Gosh, in some ways I was thinking about it. I called it a promise and then I thought about it more and went, it's not even so much a promise as it is another declaration, another statement. He doesn't promise, I will be with you. He says, statement of fact, I am with you. I am with you. He does not send us on this global mission on our own. In many ways, it's not even just that he sends us. He says, come with me. I'm doing this. I am on a mission to make disciples of all nations. Come with me. We join him as disciples who make disciples. He is and ever will be our teacher and our guide. Amen? We have much to learn, much to practice, much to turn from, which is why we want to spend these next two months looking at these such important words of Jesus. I'm gonna invite Cole and Shannon back up to sing. We're gonna sing a song of Jesus as our king of kings who is to be praised forever. As we continue in this series, let me just point out this out to you. Look at the all statements that Jesus uses here. All authority belongs to Jesus. He's commissioned us to make disciples of all nations, to teach them to observe all that he's commanded. And he is with us all ways. Literally in Greek, all of the days until the completion of the age. Over the rest of the summer, we're going to continue to contemplate these words. I know we all get a little hit and miss in the summer because there's different plans going on, which is part of the fun of summer. But I would say this, try to stay engaged, stay connected. Maybe you're even watching this online right now. It's been weeks. Maybe it could even be the fall now and you're going, what were we talking about this summer? I'm grateful to have this, but let's stay engaged in this conversation together because we are a community of disciples who are seeking to learn to worship and wrestle together. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing that it is. Thank you, Jesus, that this commission does not rest on our ability, but on your authority. Would you empower us as we seek to be faithful to you, we pray, amen.